You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. All right, so we're doing Exodus 21 to 21 today. So, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the, ch- the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his, ex, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will die. And we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Thanks, Murray, and thanks, Chris. Uh, If you'd like to follow along with an outline of my sermon today, you can find that on the online welcome card. So if that's uh, useful for you, then then please look that up. Uh, Let's pray as we look at God's Word. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you for your Word and we pray that this afternoon you would give us the humility we need uh, to understand it, uh, to trust it and to be changed by it. Uh, For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, you've just heard uh, Mari read out uh, a part of God's law, uh, in particular the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, I wonder what you think the purpose is of God's law. Uh, last week I said that the purpose of God's law for Christians, for those who've been freed from their sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the purpose of God's law for Christians is to give us a guide for how we might live out our freedom in Christ and truly flourish as God's children. That's the purpose of God's law, Uh, but that's not the full purpose of God's law. Uh, So I want to pick up on this question again, because in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 46, Jesus says this to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, Jesus says, "Uh, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me 
in the law of Moses, Jesus says. It's written about Jesus in the law of the Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Uh, Then Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So Jesus himself says that if you really want to understand the Bible, if you really want to understand the law of Moses, you have to understand how all of it points towards him. In particular, how it points us towards the good news of what God has done for us in him, the good news of God's grace to us in Christ. So that's the angle we're taking today. I want us to see as we look at the Ten Commandments, how these Ten Commandments point us towards our desperate need of God's grace in Christ, how they show us how we can receive God's grace in Christ, and they show us how we can respond to God's grace in Christ, in particular, by, willing, uh, by living a well-ordered life of love under God's rule. That's kind of where we're headed. Right? Uh, so first, uh, let's take a look at how God's law points us towards a well-ordered life of love under God's rule. That's my kind of summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you might remember from when we looked at Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22, uh, a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said this, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on these two commandments. So you see, Jesus summarized all of these Ten Commandments as being centrally about love, about loving God and loving others. So if you take a glance at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, you might notice that commands 1 to 4 are centrally about loving God rightly, about having a well-ordered relationship, if you like, a vertical relationship with God. And commands 5 to 10 are about um, having well-ordered relationships on the horizontal level. They're about loving our neighbours rightly. You see what I'm saying? Well, when God uh, saves his people and, and he is their king, they're to live their lives under his rule as, as his redeemed people, God says living a well-ordered life under his rule is all about love. It's all about loving him and loving others. It's because of where Chris started our service today. The God of the Bible is a God who in his very essence is love. He's not just loving, he is love in actually who he is. A God the Father, the Son and the Spirit for all eternity have lived together in a beautiful, loving community. And as people who've been made in the image of that God, we're created to live and to thrive and to really flourish as human beings when we live in relationships of love with God and with others, when we love God rightly and love others rightly. Of course, the problem with that is that in our sin, the loves of our hearts are all disordered. They're all out of whack. They all get misdirected at the wrong places. So the purpose of God's law for his people who is rescued from Egypt is to really reorder the loves and desires of their heart so that they can live a well-ordered life of love under his rule. 
And now, of course, to live a well-ordered life under the rule of God is to live a life under the rule of Christ, God's Son. That's what we see in the big story of the Bible, so it's no surprise that God's law points us towards Jesus. First, it points us towards our desperate need of God's grace to us in Jesus. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, uh, many of us here were on church camp, and I think some of you had a go at archery. Did anyone have a go at archery? Who's here? Maybe it was just the kids by themselves. Uh, Anyway, that wouldn't be recommended. Uh, But, you know, when you're doing archery, you're aiming that arrow at the perfect bullseye at the centre, aren't you? Now, I suspect, unless you're a particularly good archer, uh, that if you're shooting at that perfect bullseye, uh, most, if not all, of your arrows missed the bullseye. In fact, the bullseye really only serves to show you just how far you fall short, just how much help you need if you're going to be a proficient archer. And God's law is a little bit like that, isn't it? We heard it on the, you know, Can You Obey show, in a sense. Right? Each of these commandments is a little bit like the perfect bullseye that God calls us to hit. Uh, the trouble is that the arrows of our life rarely hit it. Uh, we've, uh, the, the perfect bullseye of God's law really serves to show us just how far we fall short, just how much we're in desperate need of his grace. So maybe it'll be a little bit brutal uh, to work through these Ten Commandments and kind of take a look at them, Uh, but we're going to work through each of them uh, with the aim uh, that we'll see that we're in desperate need of God's grace. Uh, So first, we've got the first commandment, uh, uh, the first four commandments. Remember, they're all about loving God rightly. And the first commandment, uh, God says, is you shall have no other gods before me. God knows that he's freed his people from Egypt where the people worshipped a whole bunch of different gods and he's going to bring them into the land of Canaan where the people worship a whole bunch of different gods. So in that context with many gods, God says his people are to give the love of their hearts exclusively to him and they're to love him with an undivided loyalty. I mean, if you're familiar with the rest of the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that Israel doesn't do a great job of doing that. Right? Israel repeatedly turns aside to worship the gods of the nations. Now, of course, we too live in a culture that's full of all sorts of different gods. Not typically, uh, maybe you have these uh, around in your kind of, uh, I guess, family network or culture, but not typically little silver kind of idols or gold or wooden carved idols, right? Uh, But there are a bunch of gods, aren't there? Are things that promise us a whole lot. Are the gods of work or money or sex or power or approval or comfort or pleasure? These are the gods that our culture is organized around, the gods that we're encouraged to give our lives to. And God says to us in the midst of those gods, don't allow the loves of your hearts to go chasing after those gods, but give the love of your heart exclusively to me with undivided loyalty. And if we're honest, we all fail to do that. I reckon not any of us could say that we hit the perfect bullseye of this first commandment. Even if we do worship God and love God, uh, we might indeed fail to worship him as he's revealed himself by speaking, uh, which is really the point of the second commandment in verses 4 to 6. I'm not going to read those verses out again, but but uh, I just want you to see that that commandment is grounded in two big truths. 
The first big truth is that our God is spirit, but right? he has no physical form. Uh, so the, the way that we know uh, what, who he is and how he wants us to worship him uh, is because he has revealed himself by speaking to us. That's the first kind of truth that this is grounded in. The second truth this command is grounded in uh, is that the God of the Bible has made us in his image. Uh, so we're not to try to make him in our image. Right? Sometimes we're tempted to do that, to try and, uh, because we think it might help us to worship him, to perhaps have an idol or, or an icon or some kind of visual aid that's supposed to help us worship God. Now, this is not because God is anti-art or beauty or wonderful aesthetics. Right? God made a beautiful world. Uh, but what's the point in this command? Take a look in verses 4 to 6. The point is that God is jealous that his people really know who he is that his people worship him as he actually is. Not just worshipping a completely man-made version of him. And I reckon we can slip into us, into this sort of thing. You might say something like, well, well I know it says here in the Bible that God, uh, that God will punish those who don't worship him rightly. Uh, but, you know, the God I worship would never do that. You've heard people say something like that, haven't you? Oh, I know it says here in the Bible that, that God will show forgiveness and mercy and compassion to absolutely anyone who humbly repents and trusts in Jesus. Uh, but let me tell you, the God I worship would never forgive someone like that. Uh, if that's you, in the end, you're not worshipping the God who made you in his image. You're worshipping a God that you've made in your own image. A God who, well, a God who really ends up just being a projection of your own particular likes and preferences. Because any time you come across something in the Bible that you don't like, you reshape God to fit your preferences. So I reckon most of us would fail on this count. A third, we fail because we fail to honour God's glorious name and reputation. Take a look in verse 7. God says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, uh, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Uh, the word misuse there is literally kind of lift up or, or carry. Uh, and typically, you, you've maybe heard this said, it's kind of thought of as misuse the name of the Lord because you're lifting up the Lord's name on your lips in a way that doesn't honour him. So sometimes translated, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not use the Lord's name as a swear word, as an expletive. That doesn't honour God. Now, of course, that's, that's right. But more broadly, there's a sense in which as God's people, if you claim to be one of God's people, you're lifting up the name of the Lord all the time. You're bearing the name of the Lord wherever you go. And so this command is really saying that, that a well-ordered life under God's rule is one in which the person lives to make God's name great, to lift up his glory and reputation, rather than living to make your name great, which is what lots of us do sometimes, to lift up our glory and reputation. I wonder if you could honestly say that your life has consistently lifted up the glory of God. Or has it sometimes tarnished the glory of God? 
But we fail in this count. Where we fail to imitate God's patterns of work and rest. This is verses 8 to 11. Uh, Israel is told, observe the Sabbath, work for six days and rest on the seventh day because God uh, worked in his creative work for six days and then rested on the seventh day. Uh, So as people made in God's image, uh, we've got to take this time for rest. We've got to imitate God's patterns of work and rest. That's part of a well-ordered life under God's rule. Why is that? Uh, Well, first, because it reminds us that God is God and we are not. That's always, it's always helpful to be reminded of that. Right? God never grows weak, but we do grow weak. God never ever gets tired, but we do get tired. God never ever needs to take a nap in the middle of the day, but we do sometimes need to do that. We've got to imitate God's patterns of work and rest because as fragile human beings made in the image of God, we need physical renewal. But the, the Sabbath isn't just about physical renewal, it's also about spiritual renewal. When Moses is repeating the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the reason he gives there for observing the Sabbath is that Israel might remember their redemption from Egypt. Likewise, in the New Testament, we we see that the main rest that all of us need to find is the spiritual rest that comes through knowing Christ by being redeemed from our slavery to sin. So what does this mean for us as Christians? I don't have time to kind of unpack all the, the details of the Sabbath. But I do want to say that as Christians, we shouldn't be overly legalistic about working or or about not working or or shopping or uh, playing a sporting match on Sundays. We shouldn't be overly legalistic about that. Uh, But we should set aside time for Sabbath rest. Uh, To meditate on the fact that through faith in Christ, God has set us free from slavery to sin, that we might find rest for our souls. I guess what I really want to say is none of us are as physically strong as we think we are. So on the one hand, you say, don't be legalistic about the Sabbath, but you're still a person made in the image of God. You can say, well, I'm not bound to keep the Sabbath. Well, sure. But if you never set aside times of quality rest for physical renewal, then don't be surprised if you grow weak and tired and end up burnt out. Because this is wired in to the fabric of creation. And likewise, none of us are as spiritually strong as we think we are. Oh, don't be legalistic about the Sabbath, of course. So I'll I'll come to church once in every six weeks and work on Sundays more often, go to that family function, play that extra sporting match. Like if that's your attitude and you're not getting the spiritual renewal that the Sabbath offers, don't be surprised if you start drifting spiritually. Because none of us are as spiritually strong as we think we are. We've got to be regularly meeting with God's people, hearing his word, praising his name. And I reckon we struggle to imitate God's patterns of work and rest because deep down we just don't trust God. This is what it comes comes down to for me. I just really don't trust that God is great. What does that mean? It means that I think that if I stop working, maybe God might stop working, you know? I've got to keep doing stuff because I'm in control, not God. But God is great, right? He's in control all the time and he won't take a nap when I take a nap so I can have a break. I really don't trust that God is gracious. 
So I get in this kind of mindset of thinking, I've got to keep working to prove myself. God is gracious. My standing before him is not dependent on my work, but on Christ's work. And I struggle because I don't really trust that God is good. And so I keep turning to my work and productivity to find joy and freedom and pleasure rather than setting aside time to enjoy God. I suspect that you're not that different to me. That's why I suspect that you too struggle to imitate God's patterns of work and rest. So that's the first four commandments. Loving God rightly. Take an honest look at those perfect bullseyes. Maybe give yourself a mark out of four. I reckon we struggle when it comes to those commandments and we also struggle when it comes to loving others rightly. Take a look in verse 12. We struggle to honour and obey our parents. Now, most of the children aren't here, uh, but I think this is part of a kind of well-ordered life. Children are are called to honour and obey their parents, their loving authority of their parents, because in so doing, they are taught to honour and obey the loving loving authority of God. I think that's the idea. Of course, all of us resist and rebel against God's authority. Likewise, all of us resist and rebel against the authority of our parents in one way or another. I know it's different as an adult, but you can think back to when you were growing up. We struggle with this. We fail at this. We also fail because we murder others and treat others with contempt. In verse 13, God says, you shall not murder. A lot of these commands have a background in the idea of people being created in the image of God. I don't have enough time to talk about all of them, but it's important here. Genesis 9 verse 6, God says, uh, Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? Because in the image of God has God made humankind. You see the logic, murder is wrong because every human life is precious to God. Every person made in the image of God. And I felt convicted this week to to just add in that this includes the lives of those who aren't yet born. And if you've been around DPC for a number of years, you'll know that I hardly ever talk about this topic of abortion. Uh, Some people might say that's because I'm a coward. Maybe that's true. Uh, But I think it's because I understand that it's deeply personal and and emotional and painful. Uh, And for many people, raises a a whole bunch of ethical complications. I'm happy to chat about that. Uh, But one thing that, for me, I I keep coming back to the conviction that one thing that's not that complicated as I read the Scriptures is that every human life is precious to God. Even those that aren't yet born. And so the, some of the most relaxed abortion laws in the world here in Victoria is something that is a grief to me. Now, if you're someone who, uh, a woman here who has had an abortion, I want you to hear from me uh, that this is a community of love and grace, a community of healing and restoration, and you can come to Jesus and find those things. And I hope that you might even feel comfortable to talk to me or to a trusted friend about that. But I did want to say that that murder is wrong because every human life 
is precious to God as one made in his image. Uh, of course, in Matthew 5, Jesus picks up this commandment. Matthew 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said uh, to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone uh, who uh, says to a brother or sister, Rakhar, is answerable to, uh, in a court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's intense. Uh, on, the pictures, uh, on the walls of our house at home, we've got some pictures of our children. Uh, we don't have lots of them, uh, not like lots of little shrines to different kids or something, but uh, we've got... The, sorry, that's... Anyway, that reflects my kind of tendencies when it comes to photos. Uh, but yeah, we, we've got some pictures of our kids. Uh, and so I want you to imagine you, you came over to our house, you, you take a picture off the wall. Let's say it's a, a picture of Ada, my oldest daughter. Uh, you pick it up uh, and you get your permanent marker and you just start drawing all over that photo of Ada. You know, you, you give her a little moustache, a bit of a beard... You kind of get some funny-looking glasses, big, thick, black eyebrows, little pointy horns, whatever it is. Like, you're just drawing a picture to mock her. I say, what do you think you're doing? You say, what's the big deal? It's just an image of Ada, not actually Ada herself. But, of course, how you treat that image of Ada says a lot about what you think about Ada herself. Likewise, how you treat a person made in the image of God says a lot about what you think of God himself. That's why Jesus says it's such a big deal to treat someone with contempt, to mock someone, to cut someone to pieces with your angry and rage-filled words. We fail because we murder others and we treat others with contempt. We fail because we commit adultery and lust after others. Right? You shall not commit adultery, God says. I don't know, maybe some of you have failed on this count. Like you actually have co committed adultery. You've been sexually unfaithful to your husband or wife. There's grace and mercy for you in Christ. But don't let yourself off the hook if you haven't actually committed adultery. Remember again that Jesus says, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully, uh, sorry, looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, yeah, it's not wrong, of course, to notice an, an attractive man or woman across the room. But it is wrong to mentally dwell on that, to mentally undress them, to imagine what it will be like to be with them sexually. That's wrong, right? It treats a precious image-bearer of God as an object that exists for your personal sexual gratification. It says sex is a commodity, and that person is a commodity for you to consume, rather than a sacred act that is a precious gift given to us by God. And so I don't want to bet that all of us fail on this count. And we also fail in verse 15 because uh, I said that it would be a bit brutal, but you know, sometimes the pain comes before the grace. We steal from others and don't give generously. 
Uh, perhaps not many of us steal uh, actual money from people, although I know some of you had an experience of people stealing your money recently. Perhaps you, you don't steal maybe concrete possessions from people. Uh, I reckon that all of us have stolen royalties from someone. Do you like downloaded pirated music or movies or TV shows? I mean, that, that's stealing, isn't it? Just a bit more detached than stealing it from someone's house. I suspect all of us have stolen credit from someone, you know, someone else's idea, but you've passed it off as your own. We all steal from others, and not only that, in Ephesians 4 verse 28, Paul says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, uh, but must work doing something useful with their hands uh, that they might have something to share with those in need. So the intent of this command isn't just that we'd avoid stealing, but that we'd work hard with our hands so that we'd have something to share with other people, to give generously to other people. And I think, again, uh, of course, many of us are working hard with our hands, but, and we probably give some stuff generously to share with others, but I suspect that it's not kind of right in the forefront of our minds that we're working hard that we might have something to share with others. Uh, we also struggle with covetousness. Uh, we covet what belongs to others. Uh, and we fail to be content. If you look in verse 17... You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And once again, this is to do with disordered loves, kind of dodgy desires in our hearts. This kind of covetous heart is the heart that says, God really doesn't care about what I need. Because if God did care, he would have given me what they have. He would have given me their wife, or their job, or their health. He would have given me their house. Instead of being content with what God has blessed us with, we covered what other people have. That's all ten. Yep, take a, take a breath. I suspect all of us feel like we've just been shooting arrows and all of them are kind of drifting off course, falling short. You're tempted to run up and move the target, right? Kind of like, well, like, like I know my arrow's not that good, but I'll just reposition the standard, the bullseye, so that I can hit it more often. I mean, that's not what God wants us to do. The purpose of God's law is not so that we would all prove ourselves to God, but so that we would be able to humbly admit just how far we fall short. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous before in God's sight by works of the law. Right? No one does this. No one ticks all the boxes. No one obeys all the commands. So what's the purpose of the law? Paul says, rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. By God's law, uh, sometimes in very painful ways, reveals our sin. Why would God do that to us? Cut us so deep? Because he wants our hearts to be healed by the wonders of his grace in Christ. And until you recognize that you're sick, you won't recognize your need for the gospel. So I hope you've seen that, that your life falls short. Not because I want to beat up in you and make you feel bad about yourself, but because I want you to understand the wonders of God's grace in Christ. How can we receive God's grace in Christ? That's our next section. We all desperately need it. 
Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, you might remember that Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish God's law, but to fulfill God's law. Uh, And there's a bunch of things that could be said about how Jesus fulfilled God's law. I want to pick up on one of them, uh, which is that at the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, he gathered Israel together and he reminded them that if they obeyed God's law, it would bring blessing from God. And if they disobeyed God's law, it would bring curses from God. So when we fast forward through the story of the Bible to Jesus, what we see is a human being who lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law, perfectly loving God, his Father, and others to the very end of his life. So what did Jesus deserve? Jesus deserved to experience the full blessings of obedience to God's law. And yet upon the cross, he willingly bore the full curses of disobedience to God's law. Of our disobedience, in Galatians 3 verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law, obeying each and every one of those commands. And yet upon the cross, He willingly received what we deserved for for our lives that fall hopelessly short. Jesus bore the curse of God's judgment, bearing shame, being forsaken, being exiled from his Father's presence. And he did that so that by faith in him we might receive what he deserved, blessing from God rather than curse, being honoured by God, being loved by God, Not being exiled or alienated from God's presence, but welcomed into God's presence, into his family, as we've heard earlier, as one of his dearly loved children. I hope you can see how God's law points us towards how we can receive God's grace in Christ, that Christ bore the full curses of all our disobedience, that we might experience the full blessings uh, of being uh, uh, of the one who was obedient. And so God's law also points us to how we respond to this wonderful gift of God's grace to us in Christ. Uh, in Romans 8 verse 4, Paul says something pretty incredible. He says, The righteous requirements of God's law can be fully met in us uh, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, what does he mean by that? By saying that the righteous requirements of God's law might be fully met in us. I think the key is to hold together two aspects of Christ's powerful work. Either there's Christ's powerful work for us and his powerful work in us. Right? Christ's powerful work for us on the cross uh, secures our status before God. Uh, so that we're justified before God, not condemned, accepted, not rejected, blessed, not cursed. Uh, But if you're a Christian, Christ hasn't only done a a powerful work for you in the past, he's doing a powerful work in you by the power of his Spirit right now. Uh, And Paul's saying that as you live your life in accordance with the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, you can, at least to some extent, even more and more over time, live a life that pleases God, a life that is in accordance with the righteous requirements of God's law. 
You can live the well-ordered life of love with God's help in the power of the Spirit of loving God and loving others. And God's law that we've looked at today in the Ten Commandments gives you a guide, as I said last week, of what that well-ordered life of love looks like. The purpose of God's law is to reveal our desperate need of God's grace in Christ to show us how we can receive God's grace in Christ and to show us how we can respond to God's grace in Christ by living a well-ordered life of love, of loving God and others as we live our lives under his rule. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that each of us would be cut to the heart uh, just enough that we might freely confess our sins to you and embrace for the first time, or perhaps afresh, your wonderful grace to us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.